welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Welcome to the Madden America podcast. I'm Justin Carter. I'm a doctoral student in psychology at UMass Boston and the lead research news editor for the Madden America website. If you haven't checked out that part of the website before, we provide daily coverage of the latest mental health research that challenges the predominant biomedical paradigm in psychiatry and psychology. Today, I am very excited to sit down with Dr. Pat Bracken for an interview about his life and his career as a critical psychiatrist and philosopher. Dr. Bracken, who holds doctoral degrees in both medicine and philosophy, is the author of Trauma, Culture, Meaning, and Philosophy, published in 2002, and the co-author, along with Dr. Philip Thomas, of Post-Psychiatry, Mental Health in a Postmodern World, published in 2005. Dr. Bracken has been recognized frequently for his record of international clinical work. He has worked as a psychiatrist in rural Ireland, inner city, multi-ethnic parts of the UK and in Uganda, East Africa. Dr. Bracken, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. I wanted to start by talking a little bit about your upbringing, how it was growing up Irish in a Catholic country, and how that may have influenced your thinking and, and your belief systems. Yeah, well, I grew up in Ireland. I guess in the 60s and 70s were most of my childhood. And it was a very different place then, Justin. Ireland it was quite an oppressive society at that time. We were very much dominated by the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm not anti-Catholic or, you know, I, I grew up in that tradition. And I see a lot of very positive things that religion can bring to people in their lives. But there was a very dark side to the domination of Catholicism in Ireland. We know now just how dark that was in terms of child sexual abuse, uh, clerical abuse of, of young people. But it was wider than that. It was a, a very harsh atmosphere for anyone who showed any deviance from the mainstream mores of the time. So if you were gay, it was a very difficult place to be, I think. If you came in conflict with the church in any way, it was, it was a difficult place to be. And I think a lot of young people left the country, and I think that was a real tragedy. It was also the 1970s when I was starting to, to think, I guess, and become a student, uh, course, we were in the middle of, of what we now euphemistically call the Troubles, which was a war going on on this island, you know, um, and that really had fairly major implications for all of us. Um, even though I lived and uh, studied right down in the south of Ireland, the conflict in the north of Ireland was never far from us and dominated the political scene of the, of the 70s and well into the 80s. And economic it was, it was it were hard times as well. Uh, there wasn't a lot of luxuries around. Anyway, I say all of that uh, to say that it wasn't a, an easy time, but nor was it in many other places. And in some ways, that also kind of helps to shape, I think, a critical response to society. You grow up in a society where you see lots of uh, oppression in in all its forms, and that. You know, you have to take a position on that. And I think it helped me as a young person to know that there were deep problems with the sort of status quo that we had and that one had to struggle against that. You had a sense that dogma could be 
potentially really dangerous or harmful and that uh, inherited beliefs uh, needed to be challenged or thought about anew, something like that? Absolutely, absolutely. Ireland was in many ways, even though we were a democracy, a republic, since we achieved independence from, from Britain back in the, in the 1920s, we were very much dominated by, by the Catholic Church uh, in terms of what was allowed to be said uh, what practices were allowed um, uh, to be acknowledged and to be embraced and to be celebrated. And it, it, that was a very narrow menu of options. So, if you, you know, when, when, when you think of the power that the church had, the bishops had uh, within a society like that in the 70s and 80s, I mean, in many ways, I've, I've started... <laughs> to see some of our professors of psychiatry can be a bit like controlling a discourse, controlling what can be said, mm. controlling what can be uh, practiced, what's allowed within a, a discussion of a problem, what, what, what is an acceptable way of thinking and talking about problems. And, and I've certainly had my, my history with psychiatry over many years. I've seen just how arrogant uh, my own profession can be. You've got a really sort of nuanced and complex point to this is that the dogma can be dangerous. And yet also with, with uh, religion growing up, you saw it offer something uh, to people in your family and your parents who mentioned during times of crises. And so that the tradition uh, can, can also be helpful at times, even if it needs to be challenged. And so bringing that sort of nuanced and, and sort of complex understanding into your career as a psychiatrist, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, when did you decide to sit down on a set out on a career for psychiatry? How did you decide you wanted to become a psychiatrist? Very early on, actually. Um, quite unusually, I think, I wanted to be a psychiatrist before I started training in medicine. I did medicine. I studied medicine to, to become a psychiatrist, to get into the field of mental health. I don't know why, but from a very early age, I became interested in madness. Uh, I was very interested in art extreme states as a youngster in the 1970s. I was fascinated by things like surrealism. Um, And what I got from from that was a really positive perspective on difference and deviance from norms and craziness, I guess. Perhaps naively, I thought that uh, practicing in the world of psychiatry would be, uh, you know, to make a living, to make my life in that area, you know, would be, a, would be, you know, a straightforward kind of process. Like many people in the 1970s, I read uh, Artie Lang's book, The Divided Self, and was fascinated by it. Not that I agreed with, with, you know, not that I understood it, I don't think, at the time, 100%. But the way Lang wrote was was compelling. It was infused with a passion for the subject that I think a lot of people got from that work. And it's not that one would agree with everything Lang wrote or everything he did, but there's no denying just how passionate the man was and, and, and the imagination that he brought to the territory of, you know, mental illness. At that time, you know, people with any kind of serious mental health problem was locked up in great big 
asylums. They were kind of uninteresting. They were places you didn't want to go. They were, you know, literally called pits. Uh, they were places out of mind. And what Lang did, I think, was to say, these people are fascinating. These people are interesting. Their take on reality is something that needs honoring and needs exploring and needs a whole different kind of way of thinking about. And I think I got some of that passion uh, from, from reading him and, and other people at that time. And I wanted to, I just wanted part of that. So I studied medicine without any great, I, I don't think I would have practiced any other kind of medicine. I just wanted to get straight into, into the world of, of madness and, that's where I, I embarked on training in medicine. And then when I graduated in the early 80s, of course, I found myself in the reality of psychiatric system in Ireland. I found after a couple of years, I felt I couldn't continue with this, the contradictions between caring for people and trying to understand them. And at the same time, the, the power and the control that went with psychiatry, those kind of contradictions were very hard to live with. That's, that was my trajectory into the, into the world, you know. And I hear the, the contradiction between wanting to understand and care and also the sort of power over and uh, authoritarianism that can occur in, in these environments. I'm also hearing a contradiction uh, between sort of approaching madness through the lens of art or literature or philosophy and approaching madness through the lens of empirical science or sort of a purely biological psychiatry. So what was it like for you uh, coming from this interest in art uh, and approaching madness through that lens to then be in medical school or then be in you know, psychiatric training where maybe the lens was very different? It, it was different. It was different. But in, in a funny way, you know, I, I graduated from medical school in 1982 and then did my intern year. So I started really practicing psychiatry in 1983. At that stage, the DSM and the full kind of impact of biological psychiatry hadn't happened. This is the very early 80s. So their psychoanalysis, uh, for example, still had a had a had a, a role uh, in terms of our training, and other approaches weren't dismissed. There was there was quite a strong in the UK, for for example, there was a strong empirical tradition of social psychiatry. Um, in fact, at that time, I think training in the early nineteen uh, eighties, from a theoretical point of view, at least. Psychiatry wasn't as dogmatic, <laughs> it's hard to, to imagine it, but it wasn't as dogmatic as it has become, I think, at that point. And so there were a few writers, there were a few people exploring things within psychiatry at that time from an analytic point of view, from a psychotherapeutic point of view. But my own trajectory was that I, once I, I left medical school and got my exams out of the way, I started studying philosophy. That's when I got into philosophy um, because I was, you know, when you're into the world of studying psychiatry, you're reading about the mind and the body and the relationship between the mind and the body and society and all those kind of ideas. My immediate sense, my immediate sense when I came to psychiatry was the thinness 
of our understanding of some fundamental concepts, that we were building an empirical science on very, very dodgy foundations, conceptual foundations. So I started studying philosophy. I, I, I went into philosophy and, and very, you know, after a number of years studying philosophy of science, ethics and other things, I became fascinated with the work of Michel Foucault, who, of course, was, you know, spent a lot of his time studying the history and assumptions, practices of psychiatry and where they came from. And so that was a really important experience for me to experience the work, Foucault's work, while I was studying and learning psychiatry for to do exams in that. And I've always kind of felt about it that I kind of ended up learning because what philosophy gives you, it, philosophy is about questioning, never, never being happy that you've reached the point where you have all the answers because it just keeps questioning. There's always more questions. The point I'm making is that I, I learned my psychiatry from kind of outside. I never understood the world or saw the world from within a psychiatric way of thinking. I kind of could see the concepts where they were coming from and how contingent they were, how local they were, how partial they were. So I never believed them. I never believed that there was a thing called schizophrenia, that somehow that was just there as a disease process. I, I was understanding the history of that, the assumptions in it, the problems with it. So I've never had a sense, a relationship with psychiatry where I see the world through a psychiatric set of glasses, if that makes sense. Yeah, it sounds like thinking about the work of uh, Foucault that you mentioned and what you're saying that you, you realize that there was a, a foundation, a conceptual foundation that was sort of missing or absent in empirical psychiatry, but also that there were there was a philosophy, uh, sort of philosophical assumptions built into the uh, science of psychiatry that was you know being developed in at that time. I'm wondering uh, what do you think those assumptions are? What assumptions about being a human that were being sort of baked in uh, without a lot of reflection to the practice of psychiatry at that time? Well, the, the great irony, Justin, is that, is that, in fact, in earlier days, if you go back in the history of psychiatry to the 1920s and 30s, psychiatry had, a, it, there was a much richer dialogue, uh, discourse, about conceptual issues back in the early part of the 20th century. And psychiatry has huge resources, even within its own history, if it wanted to, to go back and look at how different philosophies came to impact on the way we think about the mind and, and its problems. And so, for example, the tradition of phenomenology, like if you, if you train in psychiatry, you, you train in what they call phenomenology, but that has become, over the second part of the 20th century, phenomenology has become little more than a set of a list of psychiatric symptoms and a description of them. So for most psychiatrists, they think of phenomenology as simply this kind of listing of symptoms and and asking the patient whether you hear voices or what kind of voices they hear or what's going on for them. 
Whereas, uh, as, you, as you will know, in philosophy, phenomenology is a, is a, is a huge, uh, rich way of encountering our position in the world and how the world opens up for us as human beings. And there are, there are huge insights if you go to philosophy and use that in terms of trying to understand various experiences of one sort or another. We, you, phenomenology has huge things to offer, but that became the concept of, of phenomenology in psychiatry became restricted, uh, distorted, and what's been handed down now to psychiatrists in their training leaves little, uh, you, you, philosophers wouldn't recognize what psychiatrists call phenomenology. Anyone who trains in a, in a philosophical phenomenology wouldn't, wouldn't recognize that. And I think that's been of a huge disadvantage to us. And I think, you know, one of the things I would really encourage us as a, as a discipline is to go back to our own history in psychiatry and, and to re-engage with some of those debates that psychiatrists were having in the, in, in the early 20s. That's not the only job that psychiatry has to do. It has lots of, of things if it's going to, going to become an adequate kind of science or discourse that actually helps people. But that's one thing that it could do is to go back to that. You mentioned earlier that the rise of standardized diagnosis or, or, or particularly medicalized diagnosis in the diagnostic and statistical manual transformed the practice of psychiatry in Ireland while you were there. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the rise of the DSM and how that has changed the practice of psychiatry and the thinking of a psychiatrist in practice. Okay, well, I, I guess where the DSM came from, well, the DSM-3, because there was a DSM-1 and a DSM-2, which were not so important documents because at that time, American psychiatry was, when the DSM-1 and the DSM-2 came out, they were, uh, American psychiatry was largely dominated by psychoanalytic thinking. And that psycho, psycho, in psychoanalysis, not a great deal of importance is attached to diagnosis. So in the DSM-1 and the DSM-2, there wasn't, not a lot of importance were attached and there were kind of fairly vague descriptions of the neuroses and, and things like depression or anxiety or obsessionality. And what the DSM represented, the DSM-3, you know, which came out in 1980, what that represented was the coming to power within American psychiatry of a group of people who rejected the psychoanalytic way of thinking, who said, this is getting us nowhere. If we want to be proper doctors, we've got to have a proper diagnostic system. That's our first step. We've got to get that right. Um, we've got to be able to do studies where the same patients seen by different psychiatrists, the psychiatrists will make the same diagnosis, basically, because that was... There's a number of studies that came out in the 1970s, which was which were showing that psychiatrists from different places were making completely different diagnostic assessments of patients. So there was a number of moves that led to the emergence of DSM-3 and what we call operationalized listing of symptoms and operationalized diagnoses. Uh, but what that what that move meant was that 
what psychiatry was saying is that mental problems can be addressed in just the same way that we address problems of the liver or the lungs. And so what was involved in that move to DSM-3 was in fact a very deeply philosophical move. It was a move towards what I would call reductionism and positivism in psychiatry. It was setting the, the ground for the idea that the mind could be th treated as a thing, that what, what we're dealing with when we're dealing with uh, mental problems uh, is that uh, we can deal with those mental problems just in the same way that we would deal with problems with the kidney or the liver or the brain. That's where the really problematic part of the DSM was. Of course, what happened then through the 1980s uh, and into the late 1980s in particular was that pharma started funding a lot of medical uh, or psychiatric research and psychiatric practice. Then you also had in, in, in the United States the emergence of managed care. So all of those factors came to produce a psychiatry in the late 80s, 90s and into our own time which has become really conceptually very impoverished, uh, very much modeled on making quick diagnoses with a list of symptoms and applying a drug to the problem. And that kind of psychiatry is an anathema to me. I find that just is simply, uh, that does a lot of violence, I think, to the reality the messy reality, the complex reality, the uncultured reality, the, you know, the, the embodied reality of people's problems. You know, just approaching it through that very simplistic, narrow approach, I think, uh, can do a lot of violence uh, and leads to a lot of suffering and I think has led to the sort of problems that you guys in Madden America are addressing today, you know, and have done for the last uh, number of years. Thanks. And certainly here at Madden America, but also a lot of organizations and mental health professionals have become strongly critical of the DSM and the similar ICD internationally. And after the DSM-5, uh, as, you, as you know, uh, there, were, there was quite a bit of pushback. And so there were critiques, but then there are also some alternative pathways that have been offered, some on the socio-political end, like the power threat meaning framework from the British Psychological Society, and then others that are, seem to be really uh, sort of doubling down on finding answers in the brain, like the RDOC initiative from the NIMH. Uh, I know you've written on, on RDOC, and I'm, I'm wondering about uh, what your ideas are about the alternatives that have been offered and, and where we might go from here diagnostically, what a solution might be or an alternative might be um, that could embrace the, the sort of perspective that you're talking about. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think you've, you've outlined where we're at very well there. Um, quite incredibly, the response to DSM-5 from psychiatry has been a, a redoubling of reductionism. And uh, the RDOC, you know, is, is a disaster as far as I can see. It has consumed billions of dollars and has delivered nothing. It's incredible. If this was in any other branch of medicine, it just would be scandalous if, if the whole United States research budget on cancer for a period of 10 years 
had failed to deliver anything of use to patients, I, I you know, I, people just wouldn't stand for it. But somehow, these people have been allowed to get away with with this scandalous waste of resources. But it's not just our doc, the Lancet. Uh, World Psychiatric Association, Lancet Psychiatry World Psychiatric Association Commission report, which came out last year, I think, or the year before, uh, you know, which which drew on psychiatrists from around the world, imagining what the challenges are and what the future would be, and obviously a lot of thought was put into it. But it is really, it's really sad that that the imagination is is not there. To I mean, again, it comes back on seeing the future in a very medical kind of point of from a very medical point of view that the job is you know more biological research uh, neuroscience genetics uh, uh, it's 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 a highly technicalized understanding of the field of mental health and where progress will come from and it just really is missing you know what 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 is happening in the, in the world and the exciting things that are happening in the world of mental health. In my career, Justin, the, the most exciting thing, the most important thing has been the rise of what we over here call the service user movement, or I guess in the States, people would talk about the consumer movement. Um, and of course, that's that's multivaried. People come at that from different points of view, but but it's it's an amazing phenomenon that's happened in the past 20, 30 years that People who experience mental health issues, crises, difficulties, have started to articulate that and found a way of articulating that and have come together in groups of different sorts and started to campaign and challenge. And that, to me, is the most important thing that's happened. It's the most exciting thing that has happened in the field of mental health. And the challenge for us professionals is to find ways that we can open up spaces for dialogue. And to do that, we have to change the way we think about knowledge and expertise. And we have to move substantially away from the idea that we've got to be doing more research and we have to be doing more investigations and that the future is about our science and our way of training ourselves that kind of way of thinking as though somehow there is some kind of singular truth about mental health and mental illness that psychiatry or allied professionals have, to think like that is to go in the opposite direction, as far as I'm concerned, from what is needed from us as professionals. We have to substantially move away from the idea that we've got some privileged source of knowledge and science about mental illness and actually go right back to basics and say, what kind of space, what kind of thinking do we have to nurture within ourselves and our profession that will allow us to actually engage in genuine dialogue with people who come to services for help? Now, a lot of people, as you'll know, are anti-psychiatry and they say, we don't want any help from you. Get off our back. Thank you very much. And I respect that position. But I also do see as a doctor that for many people, mental health problems 
do have a bodily component to merge. We are embodied creatures and our suffering and our distress emerges in that, in that context. And I do think that there is some role for medicine to play in helping people. And I guess that's the job then is to find a way of doctors and others, how we can do that without oppressing people. And to me, we have to turn to sources of thinking, of ways of thinking and of ways of being as professionals that will allow us to enter into dialogue. And I, I find that the future for us is going to things like the work of Paulo Freire in education and the notion of critical pedagogy to feminist philosophers like Judith Butler and others who've challenged the notions of objectivity and and that idea that there is a singular position within science that, that reveals the truth, and that in fact science is always a, quote, man-made thing, and, and there are always assumptions and always values, always priorities, always prejudices built in, no matter what that science is. And, you know, the sooner we get reflecting on those things, the less oppressive will be our practices. I'm also thinking of things like post-colonial studies, uh, where uh, people challenge the authority of a Western way of mapping the world and understanding the issues that face people in the world. I'm thinking of queer theory and the way in which gay people and others have challenged in the last 20 years uh, normative uh, sciences and ideas about sexuality. So there are now real traditions of scholarship, of reflection, of analysis that are about challenging notion, privileged, privileged notions of knowledge. And for me, uh, that's where we need to go. That's where psychiatry needs to go. It needs to find ways of nurturing a really critical, self-critical, self-reflexive consciousness that will allow us to get to a place where we can actually start uh, a genuine dialogue with people. And, and we haven't got there, and we're very, very far from it. And I'm afraid that the, the evidence from these recent developments like RDOC and uh, WPA Lancet Psychiatry Commission are that mainstream psychiatry is going in, an, in the opposite direction. This is uh, such a, a fundamental point that you're making here, and it connects to what you were saying earlier about the influence of philosophy on your thinking. Realizing that the diagnoses that were being talked about or the treatments that were being talked about, such as schizophrenia, as you mentioned earlier, weren't sort of objective features of the world, but were historically situated, sort of constructed understandings that were very specific to the time and place in which you were operating. And so, and I'm hearing how you were influenced by Foucault and, and other postmodern philosophers and queer theorists and postcolonial scholars who are thinking in that way. I'm also wondering how you were influenced by your work internationally, because I know you've worked, for example, with Ugandans following a large-scale cultural trauma there in their country. And I'm wondering what you saw in, in, in your international work that uh, sort of revealed the this, the historical and cultural situatedness of our ideas about psychiatry and psychology? 
Yeah, I, I mentioned already that I, I, in my early days, I um, became very disillusioned with psychiatry in my first years of training, and I actually decided to quit. I, I decided I couldn't continue, and uh, I had decided to pursue a career in philosophy instead. But then I saw an advertisement in the British Medical Journal. Uh, it was an ad by an organization that had just set up in, in London at that time in the late 1980s. It was called the Medical Foundation for Care of Victims of Torture. And they were being asked by Amnesty International, actually, at that time, to set up a project in Uganda for victims of, of torture. Uh, Amnesty International had spent previous 10, 15 years criticizing Ugandan refugees for our re, re, Ugand, the Ugandan state for its appalling record on uh, human rights. And they wanted to do something positive when the uh, Museveni government came to power in 1986. So they wanted to set up a project uh, that would actually offer assistance to, to people who had been tortured. And I, I applied for the job and I was, I, I went and, uh, I found myself out in what was still at the time in 1987 in Uganda. It was it was still a country that was uh, well well the the major kind of war had had ended. There was it was still a very insecure place with a lot of problems. Uh, its economy was on its knees and the infrastructure was completely broken. But I, w I went out there, I, I met my, my partner, Joan Giller, and we've worked together on a lot of these issues over the years. Joan is a gynecologist by training, who subsequently trained in anthropology and, and in psychotherapy. And two of us ended, we were recruited for this project, and we ended up in Kampala wondering what the hell uh, are we going to do, and, and realizing very quickly that as two white people, white doctors from Europe, in a country that was just reeling from uh, devastating uh, civil war and massive human rights abuses, that we could actually do a lot of harm by thinking that we've got some solution, that the solutions to the problems in Uganda are going to come from Europe, that they're going to come from Western psychiatry or counselors from, from the Western world who are trained in a particular way of working that somehow that Uganda is you know because if you if you come with that kind of way of thinking then you start to undermine local ways of dealing with suffering local ways of creating society collectivity and solidarity because you start to say actually there's an expertise that we have that we're trained in that you don't have available to you. And the only way you're going to move on from your suffering at the moment is by having access to our expertise, not through your own resources, your own culture, your own religions, your own way of doing things uh, and finding solidarity. So we became aware very quickly that we we, we had to tread very carefully in that world. At the same time, we also f respected the idea that Ugandans of all ages, all groups, all tribal backgrounds, desperately wanted some recognition from the rest of the world as to what they had been through. So people were very happy to have people there 
who were interested in that suffering. So we were trying to occupy that kind of space whereby we've, we try to do something positive without actually, you know, bringing, bringing something that could ultimately be harmful. And in that context, I, I, you know, the tools that were available to me, the concepts of something like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which had just been included in the DSM-3 after campaigning by American psychologists and psychiatrists on behalf of uh, veterans from the Vietnam War whose suffering wasn't recognized in the DSM-2. And so PTSD was a concept that was, was available to us in 1987 and was, was seen as a kind of liberatory thing because it was a way of thinking about mental health problems that associated them with, with suffering, with things that had happened to people, concrete things in their lives. But I started to really think that this was a very individualizing way of thinking about suffering. It was drawing on Western thinking about the mind as being some kind of like computational cognitive machine and that really we're, what we do is we process events and PTSD comes because we can't process events and therefore we get various symptoms of one sort or another. That way of thinking about the mind was quite alien to uh, most of the people that I was encountering in in Uganda, and to start using concepts like uh, processing, to start using concepts like PTSD, was was bringing in a whole cultural baggage to bear on people and their suffering. And so I, I started to become very disillusioned with that whole discourse, and that's where my my book on trauma emerged from. Really, was was me really trying to understand where that concept of PTSD had come, what assumptions were built into it, and are there, were there other ways that we could start to think about suffering that didn't leave out culture, that didn't leave out social context, that didn't leave out meaning, and, and that would allow us then to start thinking about what, how we could really help people in much more practical ways you know, you asked about what that experience did, and it was it was very transformative for me because I became absolutely aware of the importance of social context in shaping how we experience uh, mental suffering, how we respond to it, and how we can help. And we can't do any of those things without understanding the context in which people are struggling. You've mentioned the uh, Lancet Commission and the larger sort of movement for global mental health. And the sort of assumption that's baked into that movement or that critics have, have seen as being baked into that movement is that that there's a, a, a sort of a paucity or a complete sort of vacuum of mental health care uh, in develop, low and middle income countries and developing countries. And we need to bring Western ideas, like you're saying, to the to the people in those areas. And that sort of neglects the point that you're making here is that uh, the cultures have ways of dealing with distress, dealing with uh, cultural issues that exist already that we might not be able to see clearly through the lens of 
of Western psychiatry. And so I'm, I'm wondering what in your work internationally in Uganda, but also elsewhere, have you seen as alternative healing or alternative therapeutic or cultural strategies that allow people to recover or deal with uh, immense amounts of distress other than sort of, uh, you know, diagnosis and, uh, and treatment? What we have to do is to respect the diversity of responses to distress that human beings have come up with and not to try to understand the global issues around mental health with this kind of imperialistic, arrogant sense that the only answers that will come for depression, for example, some of the some of the papers I've read are just mind-bogglingly incredible. They just say, you know, you know, responses to to depression on a world scale are antidepressants, ECT, and CBT, or some modified form of CBT. And I just think this is this is just ridiculous. You know, people have all sorts of ways of coping, of supporting one another, of making sense out of things. And we need to respect that, but we also need a critical consciousness around the harms that can be done by our knowledge. Science can be very helpful to us, there's no doubt about that, but in many ways science is like the bright light of the sun, you know, it shines and it illuminates things in a particular way and it allows us to see certain things. But when we think about it, it's only when the sun goes down in the evening, when the sun's gone, that we can then start to see the stars. And for me, the stars are all the different cultural ways of thinking and coping and dealing with distress and states of madness and whatever. whatever. And what you've got with the, with the the bright light of the movement for global mental health and its dominance now of international discussions is this singularity about how we think about mental health problems, how we categorize them, how we campaign about them, how we train people, how we understand the priorities. All that way of thinking is that kind of singular way of, of thinking. And there isn't any self-critical or self-reflexive stuff going on within that that might turn down that bright light a little bit and might allow us to start to see some of those other resources and those other events and those other practices that may be helpful to people. So um, I, I, th- I think that's what I've, I've understood from wherever I've, I've worked in different countries. You always come across histories and traditions and practices that are helpful. You also see things that are harmful, and I'm not in any way trying to say, oh, traditional practices are all great. Everything that comes from the modern world is terrible. By, by no means, I'm not saying that. But the things that come from modernity can be as oppressive as anything that comes from history and from religion and from, from, from tradition. And unless we develop and nourish a critical consciousness within our systems of care, then we're going to do things that are as oppressive and as damaging to people as any of the other practices that get complained about. So speaking about alternative ways of doing this cross-cultural 
work that aren't sort of blinded by the sun and can see the stars through them. You were recently a co-author on a paper published in Transcultural Psychiatry, which we covered at Madden America, and I can link to for our listeners, um, about Maori indigenous community in New Zealand and developing culturally responsive and culturally informed therapeutic practices for that population in particular. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about uh, how you came to be involved in that study uh, and then what you learned what you learned from it. What were the understandings of mental distress that were sort of indigenous there? What was the conceptualization? What outcomes matter to them? Those types of questions. Well, basically, my own involvement uh, with, with that was far from, from any way central. But, but my own history of how I got involved there is I retired from my post in the health service here in, in Ireland in 2016. Basically, I wanted some time in my life that I could not be working in a, in, in a health service as a clinical manager, a clinical lead. Um, I wanted to be able to travel and do a few, a few other things. And I've always wanted to work in New Zealand because New Zealand of all the countries on earth, has a good tradition of uh, respecting culture, particularly the in indigenous Maori culture within New Zealand. There's, there has been a, a real, I think, respect for that within ministries, within training programs, etc. And they have set up a lot of different uh, services that work uh, as cultural services alongside traditional psychiatric practices uh, within within New Zealand. And there's some really good examples of that work. And I've read about this and I've been very interested because I've worked with in services, particularly in the UK, that were struggling to cope and offer something positive to immigrant communities, you know, minority ethnic communities in the UK in cities like Birmingham and Bradford. So I looked around after I retired from a job in, in Ireland, I looked around and made inquiries and I was lucky enough to connect with a service on the North Island out on the East Coast in a, in a district called Tyrafferty, uh, centred on the, on the city of Gisborne. And so I ended up doing a locum position out there and got to know Diana Kapua, who is a Maori woman, and her husband Mark, who is a Maori artist. And their work developing a practice called Mahi Aatua, roughly translates as the work of the gods. And basically what Diana had been doing for a long time was developing a practice of intervention with individuals and families that drew not on Western psychiatry and its diagnoses and its theories and its assumptions, but instead went back to Maori creation stories and the characters and family events within those creation stories as a way of locating the problems that people were encountering in their lives, problems of all sorts from family conflict to drug abuse to madness to states of melancholy and depression and withdrawal, etc. All of those states in one form or another were dealt with within the rich tradition of Maori uh, creation uh, story and narrative. And what Diana was doing was, was developing a practice that when the person, when the individual would come for help or the family would come for help, 
you didn't start by trying to make a diagnosis and rush in with a drug or a treatment of one sort. You started talking about those creation stories and finding one that perhaps had echoes or resonances with what were going on. And you got all the people, because Maori culture is very family-centered. They talk about family-centered systems. And when we talk about family, we're talking about the wider family. In Maori culture, the family is, is not just the nuclear family. It's much wider. So when you're talking about family meetings, you can have a whole room full of intergenerational and and cousins and aunts of all sorts in there. And it's about their approach was about getting all of the people talking and uh, engaging in a dialogue and a discourse using not Western psychology and its assumptions, but Maori psychology and its histories. And I was fascinated with this, and I, I, I was lucky enough to come to Gisborne at a time when Diana had actually set up a training program in this process. And so I was able to participate in that. But what struck me was that to make that really come alive, that there needed to be a critique of the West, of Western psychology because my experience was when I looked around in New Zealand was that while there was great respect for these practices and Maori cultural practices in particular, actually the mental health system still worked according to a logic based in Western psychiatry and, and psychology. And so the whole mental health law in that country is set up around a, a Western psychiatric way of thinking. Uh, the way in which psychiatrists are trained, the way in which decisions are actually made in practice, in teams. While there was respect for the cultural workers and their inputs, when it came to the crunch in the end, the Western psychiatry was dominant and seemed to be, that's where the power really lay. And so... I think what I was able to bring was was critical psychiatry in combination with an indigenous psychology. That combination where you crank down the power, the authority, the deference paid to Western ways of thinking and its assumptions and practices, and you start to point systematically to the downside of interventions uh, that come from, say, for example, placing someone with a diagnosis of schizophrenia on long-term depot neuroleptic medication that really restricts that person's life, that you actually critique that and try to find ways of not doing that. Only in that context does the real power of the indigenous psychology and ways of working that come from that really start to flourish. And that was, that was interesting to see that. And Diana is an amazing woman. That's what, what she was, was about. And uh, so I got on very well, and I had a really nice time. I was only there for a number of months. But um, that's where that, that paper came from. And the lead author is Diana Kapua. Uh, as I say, I contributed to it from that critical psychiatry point of view.
but really the real originators and the people that know about that practice uh, are are those Maori workers themselves. Yes, and we, we are doing a uh, podcast interview with Dr. Kapua as well. So I'll also direct uh, listeners to that um, interview in, in the links. So this article, uh, the critiques have been published, and then some of these alternatives to the Western global mental health movement are being are starting to be published, and this was published in, in a well-respected uh, journal, Transcultural Psychiatry. I'm wondering what you think about whether mainstream mental health in the West will learn from this. Will this be absorbed? How will this be made sense of? What do you think the likely response is from sort of the, the, sort of the powerful center of psychiatry and psychology in the West? It depends what kind of day you get me on and how I answer that. Um, uh, if I'm feeling pessimistic, I'd say there would be no listening at all. On a more positive day, I think, yes, there are hope. I, I can be hopeful. Our own critical psychiatry network, for example, has grown and has more people involved now than it did 20 years ago when it started. Um, I think there's beginning to be signs of a respect for critical thinking. And I think also an increasing respect for the, the gifts of indigenous cultures, what they can bring to us, not just in the area of psychiatry, but we can, we have to start to actually learn from indigenous cultures, even about saving our planet. In indigenous cultures, like in Maori culture, for example, the natural world has personhood. So Maori people respect the world around us, the world that we live in, the forests that we live in, the land underneath our feet, the mountains that surround us. They regard them not just as resources for us to do what we like with, but in Maori culture, those natural parts of the world actually have a status close to us human beings and demand respect from us. They have in themselves a, a status within Maori thinking and Maori metaphysics. Uh, they have a status that demands respect in themselves. And I think that way of thinking about the world we live in, it's the only thing that will save us from destroying the planet that we're on and destroying ourselves. We really have to rethink our relationship with indigenous cultures and really start to uh, think about how they can be given a, a greater deal of respect. And part of that is about us learning to listen to them. And again, that is about nurturing in ourselves a critical self-reflexivity that understands the destructive aspects of our own history. And that, in the Maori uh, context, that is about understanding the history of colonialism and the destruction wrought on Maori uh, society by colonialism. And that's, that's akin to what I was talking about earlier, Justin, which is about psychiatry learning to engage with its history from a self-critical, reflexive point of view that we can actually understand and come to terms with somehow the level of destruction 
that psychiatry has wrought in the lives of people with mental health difficulties. And only when we start to do that can we then move into a situation where we really start to respect the positive things that we see coming from people who experience mental health uh, difficulties of one sort or another and how we can actually learn from them, how we can create the conditions for genuine dialogue. This is a uh, really important point, and I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I can imagine uh, a therapist, psychiatrist, a mental health professional uh, listening and thinking uh, about this openness to alternative ways of, of knowing this cultural humility being really important when working cross-culturally or transculturally, and yet maybe it being a little bit less obvious the ways in which uh, this approach could be implemented in individual practice uh, within the West. And so, and so you're talking about sort of... Uh, being open to both the critique uh, of psychiatry from service users and anti-psychiatry groups, psychiatric survivors, uh, and also having a respect for the alternative ways of understanding mental distress that people might bring in to the uh, therapeutic encounter. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I think I think that's that's uh, that's very well put. Um, I, th- I think what what I what I'm trying to argue for, if you like, is a way of thinking about psychiatry having a future. Um, and that, that always, I get a backlash from people who are anti-psychiatry in that because, you know, it feels like I'm trying to defend something when actually what I'm trying to do is to say, what, what I'm arguing for is that I do believe that medicine has a, has a legitimate and positive role to play in the lives of people who are struggling with states of distress, madness, and dislocation. But only if we can radically rethink the starting point for that involvement. And we won't get there on our own. Psychiatry can't get there on on its own. It has to start that process from a place of dialogue. And in turn, we won't get to that place of genuine dialogue until we fully understand the harm that we've done and the way in which we've damaged people and accept that and come to terms with that somehow and start to nurture our own way of thinking and knowing from sources of knowledge that are also grappling in their different ways. And I've already talked about post-colonial studies queer studies, uh, feminist scholarship, that are all about trying to undo some of the dominant ways we've understood the world and get over some and move to a place where we're not harming each other through the concepts we use, through the practices we have. But we'll, we'll only get there by really working on this. And that's where that's the role of critical psychiatry. That, to me, is what critical psychiatry is about. So thank you so much for joining us today and for your thoughts about the current status of psychiatry and possible future directions. It's, it's been great to have you here. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.